impressive. <laughs> and I'm supposed to follow that. <laughs> it, it is worth, it really is worth it, women, coming to this uh, retreat. If you, if you notice the things that we put in here, again, I just want to call attention to the bulletin. There's a ton of information. I know sometimes it's just easy to overlook it, but it's worth reading. We have the prayer needs uh, that our church is experiencing as a family in here. And uh, it's worth going throughout the week and just stopping and lifting these people up. Some of these needs are very, very significant. People are going through great struggles sometimes in our church. We have the women's ministry. We have classes, Christian education classes. And what we're thinking about as we plan this, honestly, is we're thinking about you. We ask the question, what is it that you're interested in? What are your needs? What, are, uh, what would you like to learn about? And so we shape our classes all through this process. In fact, you'll see on the back there's two new ones, uh, classes that are just starting. One is the shape class with Judy. There's Judy right here. And um, did you get the inserts in? They're in there. Okay, good. Have you ever wondered what um, you ever wondered what God has made you for? You know, so often we go through life and we just we just kind of wander our way through blindly. Sometimes, don't we? Stumbling here, tripping here. Uh, this is a class where they're exploring that. How has God made you? What has He made you for? And so, if you're wondering about that, I'd encourage you to come. This is a great class. The grief share that we're offering. I know that some of you are going through grief, having recently lost someone. And uh, I know from personal experience, that's a long, hard road. I understand that. It's a painful road. I've sat with some of you actually just recently as, you, as we talked about uh, saying goodbye to a loved one. And, you know, it's been, it's been uh, 33 years since my first wife died, Judy. And uh, I still miss her terribly. I was just talking to somebody who lost their parents and I miss my dad. I just miss him. I'd love to talk to him. This is a great time to, to really kind of work through some of that and, and talk about what's going on. So we, we do these classes because of you, because you're important to us. So think about going to them. Okay, before we jump into text, man, <clears throat> we've been praying for our country for off and on for quite a long time, haven't we? A lot of stuff going on in the political realm. Well, today we need to shift gears a little bit because now we're in a whole different part of the struggle, aren't we? We have hurricanes. Boy, they just seem to be in abundance coming out of nowhere. And <clears throat> pardon my voice, I, I'm an asthmatic, and so all the wood smoke is making life fun for me. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up in South Florida. I grew up on the beach, and I, I don't quite think of hurricanes the way the news portrays them. My dad would come home from work and say, we got another hurricane coming. Come on, boys. We'd get all the plywood out, and uh, we'd uh, screw it up through the windows, and we'd buy candles. Um, didn't have generators back then. And games, and <clears throat> invite another family to come stay with us, and we'd just button up inside and, and hear this jet engine roar for three or four days while we played games. And, and for a kid, it's like, I think it's like the, our kids up here get snow days. We kind of had hurricane days, you know. And uh, the thought never crossed our mind that we might, this could be serious. It just never crossed our minds. We always enjoyed it as kids. We couldn't wait. In fact, my uh, brother just sent me a picture this morning of his house with all the windows boarded up and said, we're ready. And now they have generators and all that. And I look at what happened, and I don't want to downplay in any way what happened in Houston. But you know, when you have millions of people hit with a hurricane and less than 100 die, 
and you compare that to Haiti and the earthquake that happened, the big one, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people died, and it just makes me really appreciate where God has put us. And what would it be like to bring that technology to the rest of the world? What a blessing that could be to people around the world. So I don't in any way want to downplay it because it is a very serious thing. And I want to stop and pray for those people. I have lots of friends and family uh, right along that path. They're all preparing for it. And um, it's serious. I also have lots of friends and family in the Houston area too. That they're on the other side of it trying to dig out. And um, I often ask my friends, why would you live in a place that has hurricanes like that, earthquakes like that, floods? Why would you live in a place where you need pumps to pump the water out because you're below sea level like New Orleans? Why would you live in a place with earthquakes? All I get is snow. We live in a beautiful place, don't we? We do. And so our friends in other parts of the world really need our prayers. They do. That's something we see in the scriptures, isn't it? We see Paul and different churches praying for each other. And that's important. So let's stop and lift up all these people. Father, we do lift them up. First of all, Lord, we want to express our gratitude at being, <clears throat> being in a, a place, a, the part of the world where you chose to put us, where we have the technologies and the resources available to um, to offset some of these horrendous storms that come. These, uh, as the insurance companies say, these acts of you, acts of God. And Lord, uh, I know firsthand how terrifying some of it can be. Father, I, I pray for those in Texas and along the whole Gulf Corridor, Father, who are trying to make sense of it, dig out and put their life back together. And for many of them, it'll be a long time, years to come before their life gets back to what they would consider to be normal. And Lord, uh, I know from my friends that for many of them that that sense of normal will never be the same as it was because of what they've been through. And Father, I, I pray and I lift up the, our friends and neighbors, our believers and unbelieving people in Florida that are in the pathway of this very destructive storm coming. I pray, God, that you would be gracious. You would be merciful to them. And, Lord, that um, you would preserve their lives and you would use this, Lord, to draw them to you. As we've prayed many times, be so mindful of these people um, and draw them to you. Help them to come to know your son and watch over them. Lord, we are blessed as a nation and we're very grateful. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Continue to pray for them. All right? Let's continue to pray. Okay, this is the last Sunday in this series, To the Victory Go the Spoils. We've been looking in the seven letters of Revelation. We have one more to look at. It's in Revelation. So if you're following along in your Bibles, you can turn there. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, to the church in Laodicea. And every one of these churches, uh, the reason why we picked this in, in reference to victory is because every one of these letters concludes with to the one who is victorious, this is what I'm going to give you. Now, you've noticed all along the way that the gift that he's giving us requires faith. We can't quite see it yet. We know it's coming, but we can't quite see it. 
We haven't yet experienced it. So, so victory, living a life of victory leads to faith, leads to faith that what God has promised is going to come true. We're going to come back and talk about that and just as we wrap up the series at the end, but I want to talk about this church in Laodicea because this is a church that's struggling with apathy. Boy, very dangerous. Last uh, two weeks ago, we talked about Philadelphia, a church that was losing its courage. Here we're struggling with a church that is apathetic. It's, it's, well, you'll see as we read it, why. So let's just read the letter, and then we'll talk about it. So Revelation 3, verse 14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is probably the most well-known of the letters. You've all heard bits and pieces of it, right? So now you've read the whole letter, and we're going to talk it through. Laodicea uh, was very near all the churches. All seven churches were in the same region in Western Asia Minor, uh, present-day Turkey. And in fact, if you look at it on the map, kind of completes a circle as he comes around. That's what's happening. And so, as with all of the other letters, the geographic and the cultural area of Laodicea is very much related to this letter. It's astounding to me, with every one of these letters, God chose something in their culture or their geography to help them grasp the problem that they were facing. And it's no different here. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Okay, there was a, uh, there was a big earthquake in a... Um, in the early, early, early part of the first century, and then there was another around 60, 61 A.D. that just devastated this whole valley, this whole area. And um, to the north of Laodicea, about five or six miles, up on a steep hillside was another town called Hierapolis. And to the south, a couple of miles, was another town called Colossae. You might recognize that one because that's where the letter to Colossians went, to Colossae. And these two... Uh, these two uh, uh, Towns had unique and very different features about them. Hierapolis had this, this really hot water. It's kind of like what we get when we go to uh, Glenwood Springs, okay? Hot mineral water. And so they tried to harness that water, and they would capture it and, and run it down, uh, down the mountain toward uh, Laodicea. The water was terrible. You wouldn't drink it. If you did drink it, you spit it out. And by the time it got down to Laodicea, it was already cooling down. So the water's pretty worthless. To the south, up on the other side of the mountain, because we're in a valley, you have Colossae, and there you have very cold, crystal clear water. It's like Rocky Mountain spring water. So I mean, we have both of those in our state, don't we? 
And so they both met at this town called Laodicea. So where they came together and where they merged, uh, it was lukewarm and tasted terrible. Filled with minerals. In fact, you can still, I've not been there, but I've seen pictures, you can still see some of the old viaducts where they brought the water in, and they're just caked with these minerals. And so he used a natural geographic feature to help them understand, you are lukewarm. I don't like your Christianity. It is apathetic. Apathy. Apathy. That's how he got their attention. But then he goes one step further. You say, verse 17, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. You see, when this earthquake hit, um, uh, Rome, through grants from the federal government, came and restored all of the towns that had been destroyed that needed help. Laodicea was the one town that said, we don't need your help. We have enough resources and enough wealth we can take care of ourselves, which was, which was good of them to do that and arrogant. So God is using this to help them see not only are you apathetic, but you're arrogant. You're arrogant. What a place for a church to be. What keeps us from moving in that direction? What keeps us from becoming apathetic? You know, we've talked as elders several times that when there's tension in the church, there's a lot of energy. A lot of, a lot of you know, this. And, and so as we work to bring unity, if we're not careful, the pendulum naturally swings to the other side where people become complacent. Tension is actually good. I'm convinced that we're created for it. Conflict in, in itself is not bad. That's what athletics and sports are all about. Conflict and tension in a sin-filled world can be bad. And so if we remove all the tension and the conflict, the natural tendency is to move toward complacency. And we've talked about that more than once as elders. Frank Butler and I have had that conversation. Um, that, that, that's a real danger that our church would become complacent. Uh, the government will take care of things. I ask the students when I'm in the classroom, how many of you, when you see a poor person, what is your natural tendency to say, there's help for them out there, or I'm responsible to help them? Across the board, almost unanimously, my students say, well, I always think there's a government program. There's, a, there's an agency there's a nonprofit out there to help them. There's plenty of help for those people, but rarely do they ever think, I'm the one. One of my favorite stories is, um, don't remember the exact years, around 1860, Grover Cleveland, when a hurricane came through the Houston area, um, Galveston, and wiped it out, totally, totally wiped out the area, and the Congress voted a, a $10,000 uh, emergency relief bill, and he vetoed it. Uh, to the complete surprise, he vetoed this bill. And in his address to the nation, he said, if I allow this bill to go forward, then I am absolving all of the Americans of their personal responsibility to help people. So he vetoed it, and they didn't have enough 
votes to overturn it. Kentucky alone raised over $100,000. How many of you, when you see a poor person, do you naturally think there's a government agency to take care of them or this is my responsibility? You see how so easy it is to move toward complacency. Boy, it's just, it's just right there in front of us all the time, isn't it? I, and I admit to you, my hand's the first one to go up. I admit it. It's right there in front of you. I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. Thank you very much. And in our culture, um, we have a lot of people up here, some of you are there, that are retired and have the resources to take care of yourself. Boy, it's so easy to get into that thinking, isn't it? Ah, I finally have enough money to retire. Life is good. Life is okay. Okay, praise God for that. Uh, That's not a criticism. That's not meant to be a criticism. But don't let it take your heart with it. Because where your money is, that's where your heart is. Complacency. Apathy. We move there that fast, don't we? We do. We do. So then it goes on. But you, what you don't realize is that you are wretched, you are pitiful, and then these three words become very important. You're poor. That's the actual truth. You can have all the money in the world, but the reality is you're poor because you're apathetic. Not only that, you're blind, spiritually deceived. You can't see anything. And you're naked. You're exposed before God. The reality of who you are is real. It's there. You can't hide it. You simply can't hide it. One of the things we talked about as an elder, when you become an elder, you move into a fishbowl. I can't flip anybody off because I drive my Jeep around the county. Not that I would, but I can't. Can't run the stop signs. Can't do all those things. I'm always having people honk at me and wave at me. When you become an elder, you move into a fishbowl. People begin to observe and watch. And so it becomes very important to live out our faith in, very, uh, in ways of, that demonstrate fidelity and integrity. You're naked. So here's what, is, here's what he says to do. These three things, he's going to address them. First one is poor. I counsel you to buy for me the gold refined in the fire, the true gold. Now here's the truth about Laodicea. It was the banking center of the region. And we know what that means. Where bankers are, there's money, right? And so that's why they can say we're rich. We can take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. We don't need your help. And guess what? That money, that gold, was not the true gold. Where your money is, that's where your heart is. Jesus talked about that often. It's all throughout the scriptures. He says, buy from me the gold that's refined in the fire so that you can actually become rich. You can actually become rich. Not wealthy, like in money, but rich in terms of who the Lord is. And then he goes one step further. And white clothes to wear so you can cover this shameful nakedness that you're experiencing. Another thing we know about Laodicea is that they, had a very, they raised a very unique kind of sheep that was black wool. And it was sought after. 
And they, they had, it came from Laodicea. People bought, came from far away to buy this particular wool. And he's saying, I will give you white clothes. We've seen this imagery before. The white robes, haven't we? In the first century, when people were baptized, they would wear white robes to symbolize the purity of what they were doing in the entrance into the kingdom. To, and that's what's used in Revelation later on, is white robes. The saints are pictured as wearing white robes. That doesn't mean we're going to be physically wearing white robes. It has something to do with where our hearts are. We have been given life. And he said, so this fine wool that you're making, it's, it's not doing anything to help you at all. Turn to me and I will give you the true white robe. But then he goes from there. And uh, I will give you the salve to put on your eyes. Another thing we know about Laodicea is that it was home to one of the finest medical schools in the empire. It was an ophthalmology school. And they had this eye salve that they made that people would buy. They would come there to get it. It was a special salve. You see how he's using? He's using what's present in their culture to help them understand what apathy looks like. So I will give you this true salve to put on your eyes so you can see spiritual blindness is so easy, easy to acquire. We're that close all the time from missing the truth. That's what apathy is. Becoming comfortable. So if Jesus were to write that letter today, what would he say? If he were to send a letter to Dillon Community Church, come to me for true vertical feet. Come to me for a true high. What are the things in our culture that cause us to relax our guard? I love skiing. Skiing is not my God, but I know it is for some of you. I love hiking. Hiking is not my God, but I know it is for some of you. I love the experience of living up here in the mountains. I was sailing yesterday, just enjoying the mountains. And I know in another couple of weeks, it's going to be, the leaves are going to be everywhere around the reservoir. It's going to be gorgeous out in the middle of the reservoir. But that's not my God. I'd say it is for some of you, but I'd be narrowing it down to Tim Sealing. I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, you can tell Tim I said that. <laughs> You see what I mean? What is it that's in your life because of where we live that represents the God that has replaced the true God and therefore has caused you to just to sit back and relax and say, I'm very happy, thank you very much. I don't need you anymore. That's what apathy is. That's what complacency is. See how he uses this to highlight it? Those whom I love... I rebuke and I discipline, so be earnest and repent. We've talked several times in this series about how we have Jesus right in our midst, don't we? I don't know about you, but I am so grateful to have Jesus in our midst watching. Talked about those eyes of fire that penetrate. I'm so grateful to have Jesus right in our midst who's not afraid to rebuke us who's not afraid to say, wake up. Okay? Come out of your stupor. 
be alert. That just gives me great confidence that God is there. And it's, I don't have to be quite so responsible. I can relax in his sovereignty because he will let me know. So I've told my children as they left home one at a time, go out and have fun. Faith is an exercise in risk. If you're not sure, try it. Have confidence that if you're moving in the wrong direction, the Lord will get your attention. Sometimes I think of our suffering as this. I'm, I'm some, just walking along life, and here's the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit walks by, he just sticks his foot out. Boom. That's how I think of suffering. And I've had my own share just like you have. That's how I think of what he's doing. He's getting my attention so that I'll wake up and repent. There it is. Here I stand. I am at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, this verse is used so much to describe the process of leading somebody to Christ. It's all good. It's a perfect metaphor. I have no problem with it. It's just not what he's talking about here. Because this is already a church that knows Jesus. This is a church that is apathetic, where Jesus is saying, I'm knocking at the door, guys. Let me back in. Because what do they say? We're rich. We don't need your help. Thank you very much. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I can't help but think if you're in the first century world and you read this, he'll come in and have dinner with us. He will dine with us. They would have thought about that evening meal, that evening meal where they celebrated Christ's work. In Acts, it tells us that they did it daily from house to house. You ever, it's amazing to me that Jesus picked the most common thing that we do every day to remind us of his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his sacrifice, food and drink. In the early church, we have plenty of literature to show that's how they conceived of the meal. It was a time to pause and say, thank you, Jesus. Now, we've turned it into an event that happens on Sunday, and I'm not criticizing that because I think that's an important part of church. That's why we do it every week. But you know what? I think of every day that way. That's why I've prayed with my family all these years. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done as we break this bread together, as we eat dinner together. And that's what he's saying. Open the door, let me back in, repent, and I'll be glad to come in and celebrate the dinner with you, the communion meal with you. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Okay. Let me conclude, we looked at all of these with this idea. It's easy for us to take this language and it is a conditional idea and say, if we're victorious, then we get these things. What if something else is happening here? What if, yes, it is conditional, if we're victorious, we will get all the things he promised. We sit at the throne. We get to eat from the tree of life. We get the white robe. We get the stone with our name on it. We get all these things, right? We get to sit with the, father, with the Father, all that. That's all true. But those are all things we can't see yet, can we? What if the, vict- the victory is the evidence to help keep us on the journey that we will get those things? In other words, every one of you, I've had coffee with many of you, 
I know a lot of your struggles with sin. I understand that. That's the privilege of being a pastor is you get to tell me things in confidence. And I know. I know. I know. But you know what I also know? Is that none of you gave up. You didn't trip so as to fall, so as to die. There's not one of your sin that's been fatal. Oh, it's hurt. It's taught you a lot about grace. It's taught you a lot about tragedy and what we're not created for. But every one of you has managed to get back up and keep trying or you wouldn't be here. You see, when I look out here, here's what I see. I see some of the people that I know are sleeping with the wrong people. I see some of the people that I know that are doing things they shouldn't do with drugs or alcohol. I know some of the people that their marriages are falling apart and they shouldn't be falling apart. That's what I see. And I've asked myself the question over and over again, why do you come to church? As I talk to you, it's not a sense of duty. Most of you come because of hope. Because you know there's something better. That, my friends, is victory. In a broken world, that is true victory that you didn't give up. That's what's astounding to me. I've told the elders sometimes when I come up here to preach, I feel like I have a backpack with 100 pounds of rocks because I look in your eyes and I know what some of you are going through. And I also know you came because of hope. So what if this is what he's saying to the one who is victorious, and that's all of you, by the way, that's the evidence, that is the proof that you're going to get these things that we can't see yet. I'm going to read you two passages. One is in 1 John 5, verse 3. This is love for God that we keep his commandments, and his commands are not burdensome. Did you hear that? His commands are not burdensome. Love God and love people. Those are his commands. For everyone born of God overcomes, and here's this word for victory. Everyone who loves, who's born of God has victory over the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, John taught in 1 John that victory is assured. You're experiencing it because you're not giving up. You can't give up. People come and say, do you ever doubt? Of course I doubt. I'm a human. You know, I've walked down the street on the way to the amphitheater and say, God, if this is a big sham, I'm going to be really ticked. Okay? That's part of being humanity. But I can't walk away. Just like you can't. You can't. In your worst moment, in your worst moment, you find it very difficult to walk away. That is victory. And then listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He says something very similar. What then shall we say? Very famous verse, Romans 8, 31. In response to all these things that God has done, eight chapters of his incredible work. If God is for us, who is against us? No one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who? There's no one. In fact, he says earlier that Satan is accusing you night and day. 
And guess what? We have an intermediary. His name is Jesus. He's up there saying, did you see what Judy just did? Wow. Did you see what Don just did? Ooh, Stefan, wow. Did you see what he did when nobody was looking? And Jesus is up there going, yeah, 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 yeah. And they're covered under the blood. Who will bring a charge against anyone whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. That's what he says. No one. Relax. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the God and is all, uh, right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, our suffering has purpose. For your sake, God, we are going through these things. Your suffering is not about you. Your suffering is about the people around you. No, in all these things, and here comes this word, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. You see, we are victorious. It's one of the things I've learned being a pastor. Most of you know I came here four and a half years ago. Never been a pastor. I've been in the classroom. Never been a pastor. One of the things I've learned in four and a half years is the incredible victory that I see all around me. That's one of the great things I love about the coffees that I have with you. Is that you're experiencing struggles and trials and suffering and pain. And what I see is, wow, you didn't give up. Wow. How'd that happen? That's victory. So what if what he's saying, all of these things we get that we can't see yet to the one who is victorious, that is you. That's the proof. That's the evidence that you can trust him for all the things you can't see. Can't walk away, can you? Can't walk away. Do we serve a gracious God? We do, don't we? I can't wait to see what these things look like in eternity. I just have a glimpse, but I know whatever that glimpse is, it's going to be significantly better and different than what I imagine. I know it's going to be great. I can't run away. That's victory. You can't give up. That's the Spirit of God at work inside of you. That's what I think. That's one of the real, true ministries of the Spirit of God in each one of you. Is that you can't give up. Not once you're alive. You can get discouraged, depressed. You can end your life. You can do all kinds of things. But the one thing you really can't do is walk away from it all. And say, I don't believe it anymore. That's victory. We're going to start a new series next week. Mark's going to start it. Right after church today, I leave for Mozambique, Africa. I'll be gone for the next, uh, next Sunday. I'm gone for 23, uh, 13 days. Teaching, uh, pray for me, please. I'm teaching a class on Romans. Um, <clears throat> when I go overseas, they ask me to teach an advanced class. Um, 
because I'm more educated than most of their faculties, and so I get, was given Romans. They asked me to do a pastor's conference. That's common, so I said, okay, on that. And then they called me last week and said, oh, we have a group of seniors who's graduating and never took Old Testament theology. Can you teach us a, a third thing? Sure. <laughs> so I have my hands full on Tuesday until I leave to come back, teaching the entire day and into the evening. So pray for me. So we're going to start a series. Um, the road to victory. We've been talking about what does victory produce in us. Now I want to go back and say, what are some of the areas, the pitfalls of life that we trip over? We've seen them. Apathy, lack of courage, all of that. But what does that look like? In the walk, in your individual walks with Christ, uh, it's what John Stott calls, what are the neglected aspects of this journey that we don't pay attention to? That if we're not careful, we trip over them. So now I want to back up on the other side and say, what does the journey to victory look like that gets you where you are today? But in the meantime, just rejoice in the Lord. The answer, when you, have, when you find yourself struggling with sin, the answer is simple. Repent. <laughs> it's really that easy. Father, we are so grateful for you. We are so grateful that for the work that you have done in our lives. Lord, as I look at this congregation, I am so grateful that I see victory happening all around me. It's not the absence of sin. It's the fact that we can't give up when we do sin or when we do fall, when we do experience uh, persecution. It's just so hard to run away from what we know to be true. Thank you for giving us that gift. And thank you, Jesus, for being right in the middle of our midst and being willing to discipline us and smack us if we move in the wrong direction. That gives us confidence. Confidence to really live out our faith and be risky and try things, knowing that you will step in, protect us. We pray these things in your son's name. Well, in your name, Jesus, amen.